Amen. Thanks, James. So I was, as we were worshiping this morning and singing the song about God being good, and I'm wondering how many of us walk in this morning and we're reflecting on the fact that maybe it's, it's hard to sing those words. It's hard to believe those words. Maybe we've experienced different, different things in life that have kind of rubbed us in a way that caused us to question the goodness of God or the graciousness of God or the greatness of God. We begin to question the character of God. And I don't know where you are walking in this morning, but I would say that this psalm resonates probably uh, more with us than maybe even the song that we declared right before the video this morning. And what I mean by that is the Christian life is, is full of ups and downs. The Christian life is, is full of mountains and valleys. And many of us, if we're honest with one another, we'll come together and we will recognize the disappointments, the troubles that we face. And what we get to do is we get to come on a Sunday like this morning and we get to come and remember and we get to preach to ourselves, God is good. Somehow God is working for the good. Somehow God is doing this. He has a purpose in this. Somehow God is, is, is at work in the midst of this to bring about something, to produce something in me, in our body, in this church. And, we, and we're having to be reminded of that. Because while it is true that God is good, we don't always believe or experience or know in our hearts the goodness of God. And that's what this psalmist is responding to. The Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, uh, was a tool not only intended to disciple young hearts in the faith, but it was also uh, a tool that was used to lead to confessional unity. It was 129 questions and answers that were used to catechize or to, to remember. Uh, we, we ask these great questions of the faith, these doctrines, and then they're given a response. And you would rehearse these. You would repeat these over and over and over. And it was a basic way to disciple people. And so maybe as a, a way of introduction this morning, I would ask you the question, if, if you were to come up with a question of, of what it means to be a Christian, what would be the very first question? If you were to think about, if you, if you were to begin a discipleship process with someone else, and, and they're new to the faith, they've just come to be a, a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about it for a second. What would be the first question? If you were gonna disciple them, question, answer, what would be the first question that you would want them to know? Maybe your mind would go to, who is God? Right, that seems like a, a great place to start. The Bible in Genesis 1.1, it starts in the beginning was God. That seems like a great place. That's where the Bible began. Let's begin there. In the beginning was God. Uh, God. Let's start with God. We think about the Westminster Catechism. Similar question and answer. It starts with, what is the chief end of man? What's the responsibility? What is it that man is, is caused to do in this world? Maybe we would talk about what is, what is sin? Who is Jesus? 
There's a lot of different answers I think we would, would give, but I find it interesting that in the Heidelberg Catechism of 129 questions, the very first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Now, I want you to think about that question for yourself this morning. What is your, I want you to personalize this. What is your only comfort this morning? It's 2023. It's a Sunday morning in July, and you find yourself in Sandy, Utah, here at Church of the Valley. What is it that brings you comfort this morning? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is where the Heidelberg Catechism starts. Here's the answer. That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, it would do us well to memorize that. If this is our only comfort in life and death, then, then we should know this. We should live this. We should, we should live each day knowing that not a hair from my head can fall without him knowing, right? That every aspect of life is known by him. And so even as we begin, as we step into this passage this morning, if, if we know that to be true, then, then that should change the course of our life, if we, if we would begin this morning knowing that the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished for us and, and, and what God knows and understands about me and that nothing in life happens apart from the hand of God, then, then that drastically changes how I live. In fact, it says at the very the last paragraph, because I belong to him, what is the response? It assures me of eternal life and it makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, here's the thing. Are you this morning in a posture and in a place that you would say you're assured of eternal life and, and you have great hope in that? And two, are you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him? And I think we're in church this morning and you would be like, yeah. And then disappointment sets in and trouble sets in. And we're like, you know what? I, I want all that Jesus comes to bring and this. And financial well-being and no relational conflict. I want all that Jesus comes to bring and a great home, two-car garage, the kids, and the wonderful job that never causes any pain, right? Like we, we look at all this and we're like, I, I would love to have Jesus and this, and what is our only hope 
and comfort in life and death. It's not Jesus and it's Jesus. Solely Jesus. It's interesting. Question two of the Heidelberg Catechism continues the theme of comfort. And it asks this, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of his comfort? How many things? And I love it. It makes it really clear. Three. You need to know three things. One, you need to know how great my sin and misery are. Second, how you're delivered from all your sins and misery. And third, how you are to thank God for such a deliverance. Here's what I would say to you this morning. I know just by the sheer volume of people in this room, that for many of us walking in here this morning, it's hard to believe that. It's hard to to say that God is good and that all the time he's working for my good. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to wrestle with that. But here's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. It's true. It's true. Even though life tells a different story. It's true even though life tells a different story. The first point I want to point out in this text is life is full of discomfort. Life is full of discomfort. We read this in in verses one through six. It says, I cry aloud to God. This is a person, the heading in, in my Bible says, in the day of trouble, I seek the Lord, right? And it says in verse one, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. This is a person in despair, crying out to God, praying for relief, asking for relief, asking for someone to bring comfort, asking for someone to help. In verse two, it says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out. What's the the picture here? This is a continual prayer. It began in the day, it's continuing in the night. This is someone who is continuing in this posture and place of prayer. His hands are stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And so initially, even crying out to God didn't bring the relief. How many of us have been there? We've cried out to God. We've come to him in our moment of despair. We've come to him in our trouble. We've come to him in our suffering. And it doesn't seem like every time I I ask God and it, it actually is causing more discomfort. So initially he wasn't even comforted. You hold my eyelids open. And so it's describing sleepless nights, right? I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He moves to a time of thanksgiving, right? Like, I I just got to draw my mind back. Now, here's what's crazy is the actual hope that we're going to get to in verses 10 through 12, the answer to his despair was thanksgiving. It was looking back. But here it says it didn't work. And so what gives? How How do we, well, it's because it's, not giving up. It's faithfully continuing it, continuing in this day and night. And he said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Life is full of discomfort. 
And those aren't encouraging words maybe to us this morning, but it is encouraging in the sense that we need to be prepared to be uncomfortable, right? Get comfortable being uncomfortable. To get comfortable being uncomfortable. One of the things that uh, we talked about in our Men's and Women's Connect is this old Japanese practice called the Masogi. Some of us hate the Masogi now because we're like, man, that dang Masogi. Like, it's, it's been hard. It's been difficult. It's been uncomfortable. A Masogi is basically this. It's about taking on something that is so difficult in life, so far beyond what you think you can do, that it forces you to dig deep and find a new level of strength and resilience. Now, obviously, many of our minds kind of go to doing something difficult. We think about physical challenges, uh, but many of us did a masogi that was like a spiritual challenge. Many of us took on something that was emotionally or physically tasking or, or, or something that would really draw us closer to Jesus. And here's what I would say. No matter if it's a physical value or spiritual value, Paul says bodily training is of some value. Right? Like, so he's like, hey, there, there's some, some goodness to, to physical training, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he doesn't discount physical training, but there's something about training and, and doing something difficult and hard that seems impossible, something that you, you're like, there's a good chance I might fail at this, that it causes us to persevere. And what I see in this passage is someone who perseveres, someone who doesn't quit, someone who's meditating day and night, someone who's crying out to the Lord day and night, someone who is, is reaching out his hands in, 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 in honor and in, in praise, but also in struggle and, and asking God why, is questioning God. And in the midst of all of that, he perseveres. He continues in this. And I think that's what a Masogi trains. And so many of you took on a Masogi, right? It, it showed you maybe a potential that you have that you didn't realize you had. And there was two rules to the Masogi. It's got to be really hard and you can't die, all right? So the fact that you're all still here, you've at least accomplished one of those, right? You didn't die. But how many of us, we, we live lives seeking to avoid discomfort, okay? I'm, I'm with you in that, right? Many of us live lives avoiding discomfort. If anything's painful, we're going, ah, I don't know. I think there might be another way. Like, let's shortcut, find a hack, or create something that's easier. We avoid ways of discomfort. But discomfort is one of the very means that God shapes us. I, I would be hard-pressed to read a book in the New Testament that is not a picture of the church experiencing suffering and discomfort and hardship. It seems that that is the pathway that God uses to purify and refine His church. And so in many ways, the, the very thing that we're seeking to avoid is the very thing that God is bringing us and inviting us into. So maybe let me remind us a few ways and a few reasons why God allows suffering for his people. 
And then let me tell you what Satan purposes are for suffering. Uh, God allows suffering for his people to kill sin and grow in godliness. Read Psalm 51, the sins of David uh, with Bathsheba. We read the story, we see the, the, the purifying work uh, as, I believe it's Nathan that confronts David, and we see the purifying work. He, he does this, he allows us, the suffering in, in David's life to purify him, to kill sin, to put sin to death. We see that it moves us from the temporal, the, the, the temporary things of this world and helps us fix our eyes on the things of eternity. I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 3 through 5 that says, uh, the sufferings of this world, they, they seem heavy, they seem weighty, but they're accomplishing for us something in the future that far outweighs them all. Can, can you see that? Can you see that the sufferings, the things that you're experiencing right now, that it's actually preparing you for something in the future that's going to far outweigh, that's, that in some ways, like you're going to be paid back for your suffering. You're going to experience so much goodness that in the end, God is good and that, that he's working and purifying you to that end. Uh, to remove hypocrisy, to refine us. We read in First and Second Peter that uh, we're put to test, we're put through fires, we're put through trials uh, to purify our faith, right? Uh, to bear witness to the world. How many of us have seen people experience suffering and we're like, man, how do they walk through that with such faith? And, and God uses that to, and he puts that on display to show his beauty, right? But Satan also has a plan for your suffering. Satan has a plan, a plan to isolate you, a plan to, to, to pull you away from community. How many of us, we've experienced troubles in this world and the first thing we think is no one will understand. No one's experienced what I'm, I'm experiencing. And we feel alone and it, it moves us to a place of isolation. Uh, it, it moves us to a place of losing trust in God and causing us to turn inward, that we're no longer searching for, uh, in, in our church, in our community, we're no longer searching in God's word for counsel and wisdom. We're turning inward. We're looking to ourself to strategize, to fix this. We think that, that we have the best strategy. This is Satan's plan for us, right? Uh, he, he has a strategy to get us complaining, right? To, 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 he's caused suffering. We think about in Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. We're going to look at that in a moment. Uh, as the uh, Israelites are heading out of Egypt and they find themselves coming to the Red Sea and they're like, what in the world did you bring us out here to kill us, like to move us? We're experiencing suffering to, to get us to question the goodness of God, to question God's character, to get you to feel like you're lacking or that God is withholding. At the very end of the day, Satan does not want you to pour out your heart to God. He doesn't want you to look to God. He doesn't want you to cry out to God. He doesn't want you to speak your frustration and disappointment to God. How many of you, when you read this, uh, it, in a second, it's going to ask some questions. And I'm like, man, if I'm God, I feel like I would edit this out of the Bible, right? Like I, I think in many ways I'm going, I, I feel like, this is going to cause people to doubt 
And so I don't want to cause people to doubt, but interesting enough that it's the very doubts and the questions that lead us to greater faith. See, the enemy doesn't want us to search Scripture for truth, search Scripture for counsel. He wants you to stuff your hurt, and he wants this wound of trouble to become infected and for you to live a life full of lies and ultimately die in disappointment. That's what he wants. And so we get to come, we get to voice, we get to come and, and cry out to the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 10, it says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. One scholar said this, If God has ordained a door of suffering for you to walk through, you can trust that he's invested in both your perseverance and also your restoration. If you're experiencing suffering, he's given you the strength to persevere and he will restore you. Satan has one goal, to get you to stop, to get you to throw in the towel. And this is encouragement to us. I believe this Psalm, Psalm 77, is written to us to give us encouragement to keep fighting to keep persevering, to keep meditating, to get to the end goal of where Asaph gets in this passage. So life is full of discomfort. Second thing is this, life will push back on your theology. What do I mean by that? Life will push back on your theology. The things that your head knows, the things that you go, hey, I know this to be true about God. Life will get you to question that. Life will get you to consider maybe what I believe isn't true. Maybe God isn't as gracious as I thought he was. Maybe God isn't as great as, he thought he, as I thought he was. Maybe God isn't as good as I thought he was. And satisfaction isn't found in him. I got to go and seek that elsewhere. And these are some of the questions that Asaph wrestles with. Now, what I love about Verses seven through nine is, these are the questions you and I ask that we're not willing to admit that we're asking. Seven through nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? It's like, I, I don't know. It's, I don't believe that the Lord is good. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? I love this question. It's, it's like, has his continual love stopped being continual? Has the very thing that has been promised to go on and on and on stopped? Are his promises at an end for all time? Maybe, maybe we've been there where we read the promises of God and say, surely these, these, this must not be true for me. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I forgot verse nine. Has God forgotten to be gracious? And then we have this Selah, like this pause at the end and just a reflection. Now the big resounding answer to all these questions is no, but they're the questions that truly surface in our lives and heart. We wrestle with believing these things about God. 
which is why I'm so thankful this last week with our Valley Kids Camp. We, we wrestled with these four great truths about God, that God is good, gracious, great, is glor- and glorious. And Satan is out to cause us to look at suffering and trouble and the despair of life and get us to say, God isn't good. God isn't gracious. God isn't great. God isn't glorious. And when we fail to believe those, we begin to look elsewhere for comfort. We begin to look elsewhere for significance. We begin to look elsewhere for satisfaction. We begin to look elsewhere for acceptance. And so when you think about these truths, God is, God is great. So we don't have to be in control. I can tell you, if I look back over the course of the last seven days of my life, there have been moments where I have failed to believe God is great and Justin Bindle has sought to be in control. I want you to think about that for you this week. Where have you failed to believe God is great and you took on the reins and strategizing and control of life and said, I got this which in reality, you know your own limitations has only actually caused more fear and anxiety, right? Because you know what you're capable of. But we question the power of God. God is glorious. He's weighty. The the actual word glory is like we saw his glory. We see his significance. And when we see his significance, we don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance, We see that the one who is all glorious loves us, accepts us. That I'm not controlled by the thoughts and opinions of others. That's a stable person, right? Where have you failed to believe God is glorious or question the glorious character of God? God is good. When you look back over this last week, where have you said, I need this to be happy? I I need this and then I'll be fulfilled and I'll be satisfied. And we fail to believe that in God and God alone is complete satisfaction. Maybe you failed to believe this last week that God is gracious And so we're constantly feeling like we have to prove ourselves and even prove ourselves to God. And so we feel like even in this morning in our sin and failures, we come this morning and think that maybe even just showing up this morning is a way to pay it back to God and earn his approval. And we fail to believe that God is gracious. When we fail to believe these things about God, we look elsewhere for things to satisfy them. My question this morning, that is a great question for you to wrestle with and process is, where are you looking elsewhere? Where are you looking for approval? Where are you looking for satisfaction? Where are you looking for comfort? Where are you looking for acceptance? Where are you looking for significance? The psalmist here in seven through nine is wrestling with what is true. He's asking the question, has God rejected me? Is God even loving? Can I trust him to keep his promises? 
He's, he's wanting to come to God. He's wanting to come to God and he's wanting God to be a place of comfort. But he's going, if I do that, will I truly be comforted? And I think this is the reality for most of us. Is we know these things to be true, but the day in, day out, we go, I don't know. Like, I, I really am wrestling to believe it. Charles Spurgeon says, we are uphill and downhill all the way to heaven. I, th- I think of that picture of peaks and valleys. Our Christian life. I, I think so many of us, we walk in this morning, we think, you know, the Christian life is one, like, we're always happy. We're always joyful. We're always hopeful. And the psalmist in Psalm 77 kind of wrecks that mentality for us. Charles Spurgeon wrecks that mentality for us. We are uphill and downhill all the way to heaven. Like the children of Israel, our path to Canaan lies through the wilderness. And though, blessed be God, the grace of heaven has made the wilderness to rejoice and blossom as a rose. Yet, are there fiery serpents in it? And it is a wilderness after all. And so this is the journey we're on. One of mountains and valleys wrestling to believe these things about truth. So how do we live in the midst of this? And I would say verses 10 through 12 is no different than what he's already been doing, which is why it may be troublesome because it already says he's been meditating. He's looking, he's rehearsing these songs that he's saying over and over again. Why does verse 10 and 12 kind of change the tone of this passage? I think it's just because he persevered in it. He didn't give up in it. He continued to sing, God is good all of the time. And he kept singing it over and over, even though he didn't believe it. Even though it was hard to believe, he kept singing it over and over and over again. And he remembered the way the the Lord has worked in his life in times past. And he continued to meditate on those truths and he kept singing and he didn't throw in the towel. He didn't surrender. So here's the third point. When life in the present is troubling, think about the past. John Piper titles verses 10 through 12 in this as the way out of despair. I love that. And so I'm like, maybe we should listen up. 10 through 12, the way out of despair. It says this in verse 10 through 12. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Honest question. How will you live out verses 10 through 12? What is your strategy to live out this remembering and meditating that verses 10 through 12 describe. Because without remembering and meditating, we won't make it. We won't make it. You won't make it to the finish line. 
John Piper says, if you don't read the word and memorize the word and meditate on the word daily and delight in the word and savor it and have your mind and emotions shaped by the word, you will be a weak Christian at best. You will be fragile and easily deceived and easily paralyzed by trouble and stuck in many mediocre ruts. But if you read the word and memorize important parts of it and meditate on it and savor it and steep your mind in it, then you will be like a strong tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit. Your leaf won't wither in the drought and you will produce in your life for Christ. Remember and meditate, savor, soak in God's word. Persevere in God's word. I think about uh, two weeks ago, I was in a particularly grumpy mood. I was sharing with someone at Valley Kids Camp this week, and they're like, thanks for being honest. I'm like, yeah, your pastor gets grumpy, right? Yeah, full of what I would say like, oh man, just trouble, despair, suffering that seems minor compared to the suffering of our saints all around the world. But I'm like, oh, this is hard. I just get grumpy in the midst of it. And what I typically do is I voice my grumpiness and disbelief, and my wife is so kind to remind me of what is true. And I I know that most of us are like, dude, don't give me some Bible verse in the midst. What is your only hope in life and death? Some threefold plan from Jocko? I'm like, what is it that is going to get your heart over the hump of fear? The next podcast? Like, what, what is it that moves you to a place? And I'm going, yeah, I need the Bible. I need gospel truth. I need something that is stable, that is anchored in absolute truth to move me from a place of fear to belief. I need someone to preach the good news to me. And many times we have to preach to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? He asks, far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Okay, you should write that down. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You know what they are. They're the ones that wake you up at 4.30 in the morning. You can't go back to sleep and you're continuing to dwell on it and think about it and process it. They're the ones that just come at you, that attack you as you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you and they bring you back to the problem of yesterday. Someone's talking to you in that moment. Who is it? It's you. It's you. Yourself is talking to you. 
He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. I love that because that's what we did all this week with Valley Kids. We're going to be moved. The enemy is going to move us to a place to question the fact that Is God gracious? Is God good? Is God glorious? Is God great? Can he handle this? Can he take this? Can he control this? Is he powerful enough? And at the end of the day, we begin listening to ourselves. We begin doubting and we live in the state of unhappiness and despair and trouble. And we need to begin preaching to ourselves. But we got to be careful. What are we preaching to ourselves? If we haven't meditated, if we haven't soaked in God's word, we don't know the truth. And so sometimes it's just voicing your despair to someone else and letting them preach the good news to you. So what is the thing that Asaph drew his mind back and preached to himself? What is it? It's the Exodus. It's the exodus out of Egypt for the Israelites. The thing that he, that got his heart over the hump of fear, anxiety, and trouble was the crossing of the Red Sea. That was it. He goes back to Exodus chapter 14. I would encourage you to go back and read Exodus chapter 14 because you're going to see in Exodus chapter 14, God led them there. God moved them into a moment of despair where they go, what are we going to do? Only to prove who he truly is and what he's going to be faithful to do for all eternity. The God of Exodus chapter 14 is the God who is with us here today. In Psalm 77, 16 through 20, it describes this. It says, when the waters saw you, oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Why? Because he's glorious. They, they feared him. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. Now you can imagine the scene. Again, we read it in Exodus 14 and we don't read it with imagination. I would go back and encourage you to look at the account that Josephus, he's a historian, look at what he wrote about the crossing of the Red Sea. It's, uh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Because we just see like the waters parted, it was dry land, they walked through, but it's storming, it is hailing, it's raining down thunder and lightning, it's crashing. It says, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, your footprints were unseen, yet you led your people like a flock. And we see the gentleness of the Lord as our shepherd. Is that my alarm to tell me I'm done? 
I see what you're doing now. We'll set an alarm. Almost there. Here's what I would have you, you see in this passage. Is that while we can look back and we can go, yes, with the Israelites. Yes, the Red Sea occurred. Yes, you led your people. Yes, you shepherded them. You led them like a flock, the gentleness of the Lord. We don't have to look back to Exodus chapter 14. We can look back to the life of Jesus, that Jesus accomplished a greater exodus, that Jesus not only liberated us from social and political bondage, but Jesus liberated us from Satan's sin and death, that he set us free, that he led us out, and that he shepherds us. I love this, this verse in verse 19, your way was through the sea. He makes a way. Now, how many of us in this room, when we're backed up against the Red Sea, would go, you know what? I think you could uh, maybe part the way. You don't, you don't strategize that. You don't think about that. What you do is you go, I think we're going to die, right? And if you look back at Exodus chapter 14, what's interesting is he told them, don't say anything. Just stand here and be still. Now, I don't know about you. If you got the Egyptian army running after you, I don't know that I would stand there and be still and not say anything, right? I'd scream. I'd be frightened. I'd be terrified. His way was through the sea. He makes ways that seem impossible. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, but there's probably circumstances in your life that you go, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. With Jesus, there's a way. There's a way. And at one point, his way was through the sea. At another point, his way was through the cross. And we're like, how is he going to set us free from Satan's sin and death? He goes to the cross to take on our sin. Three days later, he rises from the grave victoriously. He ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he continues to intercede for us. We're like, what? This does not make sense. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah says. Neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's rest in that this morning. Let's rest in the fact that he makes a way, that he, he creates a way where there is no way. His thoughts are far beyond our thoughts. His ways are far beyond our ways. And that this morning you can trust him. You don't have to look elsewhere. You don't have to find satisfaction, joy, significance, and acceptance anywhere else. What is your only hope in life and death? It's Jesus. Let's pray this morning. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you this morning for this honest, honest, pouring out of heart and emotion in desperation, the wrestling of faith. Lord, many of us are, are here this morning. We're in that same place. We're wrestling. We're struggling to believe
And I just pray in the next few moments as we continue in our time of worship, of singing, of praising this morning, that we would sing these words even if they're hard to articulate, that we would just keep singing them, that we would persevere in them until we do believe, that we would preach to ourselves the gospel truth this morning. Lord, would you move in our time of response this morning? Would your Holy Spirit fall upon us this morning as we sing and declare the goodness of God? Amen.